Good morning. It's, uh, I gotta say, I'm grateful again for this opportunity to uh, present the Word of God before this church. I'm just so thankful for this church and this church body just in my life. Thankful to be a part of it. Um, you all are wonderful people, and I'm glad to be spending an eternity with you in heaven. So, um, but I, I really am thankful both for you and, and for the opportunity to preach one more time. And so going through and, and studying and trying to figure out what to preach, I kind of uh, indicated this last time well, when we preached through, uh, when I preached in February through Psalm 110. It's kind of hard doing a one and done type of sermon, but uh, I was looking through some of the smaller books, and then I remembered this wonderful little treasure um, that I heard preached on so long ago. Uh, in fact, this might have been the last time I had heard a sermon on Philemon. It, it might have been Pastor Duke or Pastor Mike's, one of Pastor Mike's first ones, so I don't know how long ago that's been, but it's been a while. How many of you have ever spent any time or studied the book of Philemon? All right, okay, all right. Either the, <laughs> we need to loosen up the joints this morning, or, or that's just what I thought. It's not a very... Uh, well-studied little book. It's only 25 verses long, and it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's, it's sandwiched between uh, the heavy theological hitters of Titus and also of Hebrews, um, so, it, so it's easy to lose this little book in the shuffle there. Uh, but let me, let me ask you this then. All right, so we know that Philemon's not really studied too much. Let me ask you this. How many of you have heard this phrase, life's not fair. All right. Okay. All right. More hands on that one. That's good. Uh, life's not fair. Uh, that was um, a favorite of my mother's, I remember in particular, uh, growing up. And to be honest, I gave her plenty of opportunity to use it on me. <laughs> Most of the time it was, uh, um, she said it in response, I would be wanting to go out with my friends or uh, the curfew was too early that's not fair, and I would try and describe to her why it was so unjust of a system, and she always responded with, life's not fair, right? It was, that was it, the end-all, be-all right there. So I wanted to take that opportunity, because that's been on my mind frequently now, because I have three young children of my own, and we have some fairness and equality warriors in the Howard household, I can, I can assure you. Uh, and so the, the temptation, and also I'm sure I've used these same three words have escaped my lips in talking to my children, life's not fair, whenever they are bringing up the unfairness or inequality of toy distribution or things like that. So life's not fair. But it's not just to kids, and it's not just uh, localized to young people. We, if we're honest with ourselves, as adults, we're still very concerned with fairness, are we not? You know, it, it's, it's easy to, I don't think we use the same words of that's not fair, but have you ever been passed up for a promotion at work, or not gotten the raise that you thought you deserved, or has the medical diagnoses just kept coming in this year? Or did you have such a week where the bills and surprise bills just kept popping up and you were just barely able to eke by to begin with, but now you've got a car in the shop and you've got to call the plumber because your basement's full of water and things like that? We don't use those same words of our life being unfair, but that's the attitude in our hearts, is it not? 
And sometimes even as believers, we cry out to God with that, life's not fair. And as a church, me standing before you this morning really is an indication, a glaring example of a struggle that we have, something that's not fair to us as a church, right? We're almost a year on without a senior pastor, and that's not fair. We just lost a, 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 one of the, the early morning service, and that's not fair, and that's the struggles that we have in our heart again. So I want to take that familiar phrase, that well-worn phrase, life's not fair, and I want that to be the vehicle that we hop in and cruise through this wonderful little book of Philemon. So we take a well-known phrase that we use all the time and, and look at not-so-well-known passage of Scripture. And so I'm going to start this morning. I'm going to read Philemon in its entirety. Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. So starting right off in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, for I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. I profess my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, just be with me this morning and clarify my speech and my thought as I present uh, this, this wonderful book of Philemon. May its truths be made clear to us, Lord. And prepare the, the, the ears of the listeners here, and then may they receive your word with gladness, Lord. And about whatever comes out of this, may your name be the one that is glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the best way to start by understanding or diving into this passage, or, or this entire book, I guess I should say, uh, is to, we need to get into the context of this letter, because context is very, very important. And I think the best way to do that is we need to identify the three main 
characters. I use characters because I couldn't think of a better word. I don't really like the word characters because these are three actual real-life people. This isn't like a, a fictional story at all. But the three main characters of this book, the first one is the Apostle Paul, and he is the writer, and that's pretty straightforward. It helps when he says stuff like, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, and then um, lists off who he's sending the letter to. Makes it fairly obvious. And so this was written about 60 to 62 AD, and this was written in Rome. So Paul is, is, this is one of the prison epistles, as it's called. Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and we remember that he was uh, thrown into prison and was denied a trial for a long time, and then he used his status as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Caesar. And so they took him all the way from Judea over to Rome, and there was, that's a whole big story in and of itself that I don't have time to tell you this morning, but he is there in Rome at the writing of this letter now under house arrest. Um, and he's writing to his friend, Philemon. Philemon is the name of the man, uh, the name of the book, and also the name of the man that received this letter. It's a very personal letter, as you can, as you, as you hear it, uh, as you heard me read, and also as we dive in a little bit deeper and, and just take note of all of the emotional kind of language that Paul uses here. It's one of Paul's more personal letters we find in the New Testament. And what we know about Philemon is really contained in those uh, those four verses there, verses four through seven. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So Paul has an awful lot of nice things to say about Philemon. And, and this really means a lot coming from Paul because Paul, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, isn't afraid to throw any punches, right? Uh, Paul, the guy who goes toe-to-toe with Peter over a hypocrisy issue, is now laying on this praise to Philemon. So Philemon is, is a pretty good stand-up guy. We see here what, what strikes me too is his love for Christ and his people. So Philemon's heart is in the right place. It, remind, uh, it reminded me of uh, Revelations 2, uh, with the letters to the churches, and, and Christ extols the church at Ephesus that they forgot their first love. They were doing all of these good things, but they forgot their first love. Philemon has not forgotten his first love. He loves Christ, and he loves his people. And he, uses, and he is a blessing to others. He's not just idly standing by. He doesn't pay lip service to other people. Uh, he's a man of means. Uh, we know that from a few different uh, internal evidences here in the letter. Number one that we'll talk about here in a minute, we know that Philemon has slaves, at least one slave. And we will get to meet him in just a second. Uh, and so he, ha- he was a man of some some means, probably not the richest guy in the Roman Empire by any standards, but he had, he had a household that he can control. And another interesting fact about Philemon, we see there uh, about having means, we see in verse 2, it's, uh, he's addressing to these different people, and at the end of verse 2 he says, and to the church in your house. The church of Colossae met in Philemon's house. 
And so, this, the, so the book of Colossians, that letter would have came at the same time that, that this letter to Philemon came with the same messenger, to Tychicus. He's identified in Colossians 4. Um, and so it's interesting that this, this entire church met in Philemon's house. And that may seem strange to American ears, but it really wouldn't be for another couple hundred years. Remember, this is written in the first century, 60 A.D., wouldn't be for another couple hundred years until the churches started having their own buildings. And so it was common for a long time to have churches meet in someone's home. And so Philemon must have had, if he had slaves and he had a sizable estate, he had a spot to house this church in where they could come together and congregate. So he's a, he uses those means to advance the gospel. So he's not a miser about them. But there's one fact that we do need to spend some time talking about. And that is this, this fact that Philemon is a slave owner. Now looking at that little nice slide that I've put together, uh, to American sensibilities, the, it doesn't quite add up, does it? We've got all these godly characteristics, and then we've got this term slave owner thrown in at the bottom, right? Because when here in America, when we think of, when we use the word slave and when we use that language, what immediately pops into your mind? the South, right? Chattel slavery, as the historians call it, in the American South. We think of the Africans toiling in the fields, the cotton fields and the tobacco fields and the plantations in the South. We think of the Civil War and the fact that that entire war was fought over this idea of slavery. And we don't have to look very hard in our society today and we can still see the effects of that heinous and evil system uh, in our society today. And so slavery is a bit of an issue for us as Americans. But I want to I do some, some compare and contrast here for a little bit, if I may. The slavery in Paul's day, in Philemon's day, was vastly different than the slavery we find uh, in the American South. Where in the American South, the slaves uh, were primarily used as a labor force, right? They were out in the fields doing physical hard labor. In the Roman Empire, uh, in the first century AD, the, the, any job you can think of was performed by slaves. There were slaves that were doctors, that were teachers. Uh, there were slaves uh, that obviously did do the physical labor as well. But they were there in the households with people. They were taking care of their master's business accounts. And slavery was a massive part of the Roman system. Uh, historians estimate anywhere between one-fifth and one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire was slaves. So this is a very significant population. And we see again in, in American slavery that those Africans were taken from their home across the Atlantic and sold into slavery on this continent. Exodus 21.16 expressly forbids this kind of enslavement or going in uh, what's called man-snatching, right? Going into those places, kidnapping them for the express purposes of establishing slavery. But in the Roman Empire, it was a little bit different. Even in the days of the Republic, you see that we think of the Roman Empire as that expanded all the way throughout the Mediterranean. As it was expanding and conquering and expanding and conquering, they would take those populations, especially the able-bodied men that might, you know, be opposed to somebody coming into their town and taking it over, and they would enslave them and use them as a slave labor force. And because of that massive expansion that, that created a whole generation of slaves and a whole institution of slavery, 
slavery, and so to continue the Roman Empire as it was, slavery was, had to be continue, perpetuated on. So many slaves were born into slavery, but another interesting thing about Roman slavery was that it was a way to declare bankruptcy, right? If I owed you money and I could not fulfill that debt to you, I could sell myself to you to cover that debt, right? And so that was another way that slavery was perpetuated. And so it was more, and it was more socioeconomic than ethnic. It was clearly ethnic in the American South. You could tell who was the slaves and who was the slave owners just by looking at the color of their skin. But if you were to walk down Rome streets in the first century, teeming with people, you would not be able to distinguish who was slave and who was free. And sometimes, and I'm not trying to make slavery into a glamorous thing here, but there were people, especially poor free people, who were worse off than the slaves the, uh, of the slaves of their well-treating masters. Because even a slave, if you think, has their basic needs attended to. They had a roof over their head. They knew that they were going to have another meal coming their way. But the free people were not guaranteed that, especially on the poorer end of Roman society. So we see here that, that Philemon is a slave owner of at least one slave. And we've talked enough about slavery, I think, to introduce you to the slave, the man of the hour, the, the guy who this book, the body of this letter is mostly about, this wonderful man by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus was Philemon's slave. We see that uh, in verse 16 there, um, that he was a slave to Philemon. And, and Onesimus does something uh, that, that gets him in some, into some trouble here. This is kind of the, setting up the whole situation behind the letter. Onesimus escapes from Philemon's household. And it's not just that he escaped, he also robbed Philemon. We see in verse 18 that Paul offers to make financial restitution to Philemon to, to help out this, this offset. And scholars have debated whether that robbery actually occurs or not, but I think most agree, it seems, in, in the readings I've done on this, is that, uh, that a robbery did occur. And it makes sense that a robbery occurred because Onesimus escapes from Philemon and he makes his way to Rome. And somebody that was a slave that didn't have any money is going to make his way from where Colossae was in the middle of modern-day Turkey and make his way all the way to the Roman Empire capital in the middle of the Italian peninsula. So that would have taken some financial means. So it, it, it makes sense to me that by necessity, he would have had to have something to pay for that voyage. But that's kind of splitting hairs there. We know that he escaped, and we don't know why. I've got a theory as to why, but I don't think Brandon Howard's theories really belong in this pulpit. So... If you want to have coffee with me sometime and engage, you know, something like that, that'd be, that'd be a good time. I'd be happy to, to talk about that with you. But the Bible is silent as to the reason. We're just given the fact that he did, in fact, escape and rob Philemon. And what's most interesting about Onesimus, probably the one thing that he did not plan at all, was that when he was in Rome, he, the Holy Spirit orchestrated a meeting with him and the Apostle Paul. We know that he met Paul in Rome and that the language indicated in verse 10 is that uh, Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus and Onesimus became saved. So what a wonderful testimony he has. And that may seem a little bit far-fetched, right? 
You think, okay, this guy's coming all the way across in a boat to Rome, and then he just happens to meet Paul in Rome. Come on, right? And Paul's the personal friend of his master. Yeah, that's a stretch. But it's not too much of a stretch if you think about it. Because where would the, where would the Christian church in Rome function at? The lowest levels of society in Rome. They were the outcasts. They were spreading the gospels to these different places. And they were living communally. They were sharing what they had with one another. And I imagine that Onesimus had a hard time getting a decent bite to eat uh, in that, that uh, sprawling city of Rome. I've seen estimates of the population of Rome at this time was anywhere between 2 and 4 million people. Just to, just to put into perspective, I think Chicago has 2.7. And Los Angeles just recently cleared 4 million there. So this is a major metropolis that he's wandering around in. And so I, I have no doubt that he came into contact with Christians, and I have no doubt that he came into contact with Paul himself. Not to mention, we know that our God is a God of miracles, and he could have orchestrated this, uh, and he did orchestrate this by his divine will besides. Which brings us to this whole entire situation. Paul has sent Onesimus back to Philemon with a request penned by his own hand. Now, don't ignore the drama of the situation here, right? Here's a slave, robs and escapes his master, makes it all the way to Rome, and then he does what most escaped slaves, I'm imagining, don't want to do, and goes back to his master's house. There's severe punishments in the Roman Empire for slaves who had escaped, right? Onesimus was quite frankly, facing the death penalty for going back and standing before Philemon. This is a very, very dramatic situation. And this letter, it, uh, evidence points to this letter arrived with Onesimus. So the reason I picked that open door there on the picture there is just to, to get in our minds that this letter with Paul's instructions and with Paul's plea arrived at the same time that that escaped slave did. So there stood Onesimus on the doorstep of Philemon's house and the messenger that Paul sent with him, letter in hand, addressed to Philemon. And that's where we find Paul's plea. So starting in verse 8, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. If you're like me, that, uh, one of the things that popped out to me right away that I thought, wow, that was kind of arrogant, man. Uh, he just goes right for it, and he says, I could order you to do, what, uh, to do what was necessary. And I think what Paul is used, getting at here is that Paul has that apostolic authority in that early church, right? He has that role of an apostle. And we see elsewhere in the New Testament where, where Paul uses that authority as the apostle to stamp out heresies and to instruct and to, to guide this budding Christian church throughout the Roman Empire. But that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is said is, is appealing to Philemon. So we get more of this Paul as a pastor type of role. He's not coming in guns blazing. He's not beating him over the head with a book. He's saying, appealing to this friend of his, this friend of his that he knows very well, Philemon, to do the right thing. And that sets up his plea here. For I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. 
So this word begotten is, is very interesting. Paul uses this word begotten a couple different other times in the New Testament. And he talks about people that he's shared the gospel with as his sons in the faith. And he really uses only this strong word of begotten for two other people, Titus and Timothy, his uh, protégés, so to speak. So Paul is using this same language that he uses of Titus and Timothy of this escaped slave who wronged his friend. So Paul is obviously very convinced of the sincerity of Onesimus' confession and faith in Jesus Christ. He's very convinced that he is a Christian now, um, and he's sending him back to Paul or back to Philemon with that confidence. And I always think this is this is interesting because um, uh, really, when we get to the English translations of things, we lose just little subtle things uh, in these letters. Um, back in the Greek translations, this little phrase here formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. This is a, a wonderful little play on words, and it, it, it strikes me as almost a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because Onesimus's name means useful in Greek. So Onesimus being, so if you think of Onesimus being useful, I appeal to you for my child, useful, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So he's making that play on Onesimus's name. And not only is that uh, just kind of a neat little literary wink and a nod, but that also indicates too that there is a significant change in Onesimus's life. It's, it's, it's again driving uh, the, the point home that this is a changed man. So getting more to it here. I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but of your own free will. So I think it's interesting there Paul claims this idea of sending him back, Right? This is all Paul's idea. And he, and he does this against his own physical well-being. Onesimus was, being, was, a, was a useful fellow worker to Paul in Rome. Remember, he's under house arrest. His work is extremely limited, and he needs associates there to help him carry out um, his uh, continuing missionary work. And so Onesimus was clearly uh, a, a major part in that, and he definitely made an impression on Paul there. But Paul still sent him back. And, and we, we, it's worth exploring as to some of the reasons why. Paul is righting a wrong here, right? Onesimus ran away. Onesimus broke the law. Onesimus injured his friend, his, uh, Paul's friend Philemon financially. There are wrongs to be righted here. So Paul sending uh, Onesimus back is not only righting a wrong, but he's also, while awaiting trial, uh, removing himself as an accessory to a crime. He's not harboring an escaped slave or anything like that. He is trying to, to, make, this, trying to make this situation right. And so this, in, this one act of sending Onesimus back to Philemon protects the testimony of all three men, right? Philemon is not, uh, is not doing something against his will. Um, 
He's not keeping his slave there with Paul as an act of charity to serve him. Because uh, that would have been really easy for Paul to kind of, uh, the classic, ask for forgiveness instead of permission type of thing. But he's not doing that. He's protecting Philemon's testimony as well. So if that's in Philemon's heart to help Paul in that way, he'll send Onesimus right on back. Uh, but, uh, but he's putting that ball in Philemon's court. He's protecting Onesimus' testimony. If he has made this, this, this uh, conversion to Christ, there is a fellow brother in Christ back in Colossae that he has wronged. And so he's allowing Onesimus to make amends to that as well. So it's a very interesting uh, and, and dramatic plan that he has. And now we get to what I would say would be the climax of this, the body of this letter. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul saw God at work in this situation, right? And Paul allows that to kind of transpire for its end. And he's trying to um, console Philemon a little bit there too. This happened for a reason. And he's saying to Philemon, in effect, you lost a slave, but you gained a brother. Again, focusing on that change that's happened in Onesimus' life. And now we have this relationship change between master and slave as well. Because, as Galatians 3.28 puts it, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we see that theory in Galatians play out in real life here in Philemon, of this, of this new relationship between them. Because before the Lord, Philemon and Onesimus are on equal footing. Under Roman law, Philemon is a citizen and the master of Onesimus, and Onesimus the slave of Philemon. But under God's eyes, they are both redeemed brothers in Christ and part of the family. And Paul continues on here, and he goes on, it's sure that Philemon will do the right thing, and concludes his letter as such. But I want to get to our application here. Because remember we started with that phrase, that familiar phrase, life's not fair. Well, we can finish off that phrase and it kind of piggybacks off of Pastor Matt's sermon last week. Life's not fair and it is cause for rejoicing. And we see that in Onesimus' situation. Onesimus' situation was unfair. He did not get what was due him. He was treated well. And if Philemon welcomed him back into his house or, or whatever happened between those two men, uh, the Apostle Paul is convinced that, that Philemon does the right thing. But he did not get what was fair. Onesimus broke the law, and he cannot just unbreak a law and say, oops, my bad, I'm really sorry about that. And then, okay, yeah, that's fine, that's, that's cool, you didn't break the law. Uh, try that the next time you get pulled over. Don't, I'm kidding, don't do that. But, uh, but he broke the law and he cannot unbreak it. And for the law, there is a punishment. So uh, by all rights, Onesimus should have received that punishment for being an escaped slave. 
And what's interesting, in my studies on this book, I found out uh, a very interesting fact that archaeologists uh, have discovered studying ancient Rome. There, time and again, there were two, diff- there were two symbols used uh, essentially to keep slaves in line. Two symbols. First one was the whip, and the second one I'm standing right in front of now. The punishment for escaped slaves was not only death, it was death by crucifixion. Crucifixion, of course, we know is an incredibly torturous death. It's a horrible form of execution. The Romans did not allow Roman citizens to be crucified, but escaped slaves, but criminals, they could be crucified. So our Lord Jesus, when he died next to those two robbers, he died a criminal's death, and he died the death reserved for escaped slaves. Isn't that amazing? The man we now call Lord and master of our lives died the death of a slave. And I, I just, I, I was really struck by that. And that's what Onesimus avoided here. He traded literally his cross for the cross of Christ. And that's, that's not something that we should downplay at all. And on top of all that, not only did he escape from Philemon and was punishable by death just for escaping, he also stole from Philemon. And he had no way of repaying and making financial restitution for that. And he can't really sell yourself to Philemon into slavery again because you're already a slave. So there was no physical way for Onesimus to repay that debt. But he had an intercessor there, didn't he? He had Paul right, uh, offering there in verse 18 that to make financial restitution to Philemon so that even that part of the relationship between those two men could be breached or bridged. So what really changed here with Onesimus when he returned? The law didn't change. His crimes didn't change. What changed was the relationship between master and slave. So he wasn't shown fairness. He was shown mercy at his master's door. And that reflects directly to our situation here as Christians in just about every single way. We broke the law. We know in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we know that from Romans 6.23, all deserve death because death is the punishment for sins. That's been a theme throughout the entire Bible, even back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, all the way up till now. The punishment for sin is death. And just like Onesimus 2, we are returning to our master, right? We are returning to our master. And that is one of the the most comforting things to know as a Christian that as we're journeying, it, it could be said if we're using this metaphor of Onesimus' life, we're in the boat back to Colossae right now. Right? We're heading back to our master right now. And the only thing that we know for sure is that we have an intercessor on our behalf and that we have a changed relationship with that master. Because there's nothing that we can do to unbreak the law. There's nothing that we can do to mend that situation, that gap between, between God and man. No works, no, no matter how many bowls of soup you pour for the poor, no matter how little, many little old ladies you help cross the street, you're not going to have enough good works to bridge that gap because it's just simply impossible. Just as impossible as it was for Onesimus. To, to be made up to Philemon. 
without that changed relationship. And that's why the gospel is so important. This is why spreading the gospel is so important. Is so people know they can have that changed relationship to God. I know a lot of my unsaved friends even, uh, they talk about this, this idea, this kind of, they talk about the afterlife with people. And even folks that, that are, uh, they, they tend to downplay the reality of the situation, right? Uh, even if, uh, as us as Christians, we're going to heaven, and it's going to be really nice there, and every tear is going to be wiped away and all that stuff, and that's great. But Scripture teaches also that we will stand before our master someday to give an account. And the same thing is true for unsaved people. They're going to stand before their master someday. And I've heard it said, too, that they, they kind of talk about hell like it's a, a party in Las Vegas. It's going to be hot, sure, but all their friends are going to be there, and it's going to be a good time but they're going to stand before their master. And if that relationship has not changed, that is a terrifying reality. So if you don't know what your relationship with God is this morning, if you don't know that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you have not traded the cross due to you for the cross that Jesus bore for you, find me afterwards, talk to me, talk to Pastor Matt, Pastor Kyle, or anybody that you came with. We don't want you leaving here with that relationship unchanged because it's so easy and so, he's so willing to do that. And that's why we shouldn't rejoice in unfairness in our lives, friends, because life's not fair. We don't get what's due to us as Christians. We do not get that eternal punishment. We have received an everlasting life through a Savior we also did not deserve. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful uh, for this book of Philemon. We're thankful for the testimony contained herein. We're thankful for the, for the three men whose lives we looked at, Father, and we're most thankful for Jesus, uh, whose sacrifice and resurrection made this entire situation possible. And we just uh, pray, Lord, that, uh, that, the Holy, that you just send the Holy Spirit to move uh, and convict those uh, who have not changed their relationship to you. And those of us that have, I just pray that you continue to convict us in our hearts, Lord, that when these unfair trials come about, that when, we, that when we feel the grumblings in our heart, may we turn to rejoicing instead, thankful that you have provided for us a Savior instead. And we pray this in his name. Amen.